Good morning. As already mentioned, um, today is unique, and so it's an awesome day. We get to come together and sing to our Lord. We get to read and learn from his word together. We get to take communion together, and then we get to have the other sacrament of the church. We get to participate in baptisms together as a church, and so incredibly important because baptisms um, remind us of things that are most important. You know, they remind us of our first love. When God first drew us unto himself, they remind us of God's heart to seek and to save the lost. They remind us of what church family is and how important it is that we are baptized into a community of faith. So, awesome day. But before that, we got to uh, do some work in the Gospel of Matthew, which again, if you're just joining us, is a biography of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to do today is just read you the text that we're going to look at today, and then we're gonna go back. So I'm gonna read a couple big chunks and then go back and kind of break it down because we got, uh, there's a lot of stuff going on today. So let's, let's dig in. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, going back to this first section, everything is going to revolve around this very short phrase, the sign of Jonah. But in order to do that, we're going to have to do some work. And there are layers and layers of stuff going on here. It's like you got to keep digging and peeling back the layers of the onion. But when you do, you see some, some pretty heavy stuff taking place. Now, where are we at in direct context for this discussion between Jesus and the Pharisees? If you've been here with us the last few weeks, you know that Jesus has been forgiving and accepting and demonstrating God's forgiveness to the people on the out, the last, the lost, the least of them. People who, frankly, the religious leaders of the day, they didn't want to see God show them mercy. So their accusations were what? Look at Jesus. He eats with the tax collectors and the sinners. And then even more than that, just in the previous chapter, Matthew, our author of this book, quotes from the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, and says that in the name of Jesus, the Gentiles will place their hope. Now, Gentiles is a term for anyone that's not Jewish at this time period. And so this is talking about Jesus' expanded mission, not just to Israel, but to all nations, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And so what you're seeing is Jesus demonstrating God's acts of salvation. He is extending friendship, forgiveness, and grace and mercy to the people on the out, the people that others looked down upon and hated. And as the Pharisees are observing this, they come to Jesus and say, you know, you're doing all this stuff, so what? Give us a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus says, the only thing you get is the sign of Jonah. That's all you're gonna get. And if you're familiar with the Christian story, you're going to immediately kind of connect some of the dots and go, oh, yeah, you know, Jesus was, um, he died 
And he was in the grave for three days, and then he rose. And so that's running parallel with the story of Jonah, where he's swallowed up by the great fish, and then after three days, he's, he's essentially vomited up on dry land. But it's this sort of like Jonah goes down to the depths of the sea and is facing death and then is given new life and new possibility. And so there is a clear parallel in those three days. However, there's a lot more going on here, a lot. Jesus, in a quick, short phrase of you only get the sign of Jonah, is actually preaching volumes to the Pharisees. He's given them a 10-part sermon series in like five words. I'm not that gifted. It ain't going to happen. We take a lot more time to get through some things. So in order to understand what's going on, let's go to the book of Jonah. Jonah is four chapters, and this is sort of going to be a lightning round summary of each chapter because you have to understand the inner logic of the book to truly see what Jesus is getting at. So Jonah chapter one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. All right. Standard opening to a prophetic book, but there's some unique things going on. First, Jonah, his actual name. His name in Hebrew means dove. And he's the son of this guy named Amittai. And Amittai in Hebrew uh, translates to something like uh, steadfast or truthful or faithful or straight. Now, uh, you conceptually then are to think of Jonah symbolically. He's like, like a dove and he's the son of the faithful one who's been given a mission by God. And so you immediately assume, oh, Jonah is going to go to these people, the, the, the Ninevites, and he's going to preach a message. But there's more going on here because what does a dove represent in the scriptures? Dove is, is, can represent in the, in the New Testament and the Old, the spirit of God. It's also a symbol of peace and reconciliation. To this day, if you extend the olive branch, what are you doing? It means that there's two parties that have been in tension with each other, but one party decides to sort of make amends and they offer the olive branch. That symbolism goes back to the dove in the flood event. And so God is sending his dove, his olive branch, to the people of Nineveh. He wants to see Nineveh repent and be restored. He says, call out against them, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So it's the exact opposite of what you were just led to believe will occur. Because especially with these books in the Old Testament where there's the, the prophetic books, there's this opening where someone hears the word of the Lord and then they go and listen. But now you have the word of the Lord given to the dove, the son of the faithful one, to offer the olive branch to these wicked people. And what does he do? Nah, not gonna go. Now the geography here is important. Because Jonah goes down to Joppa, and you see it up here on the map. He's in Joppa. Nineveh is roughly 550 miles away, and God's like, go to them. Go preach to them. Message of repentance. But Jonah refuses. He disobeys God, and he goes all the way to Tarshish, 2,500 miles away. Now, there's more symbolic uh, value being communicated here because when Jonah travels to Tarshish, he's going to the coast of Spain, which symbolically and quite literally for this time in, at this time and place in history is the ends of the earth. Like, that's as far as you can go if you're Jonah. 
You can take a boat. That's, 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 you're just going that way. That's the edge. So Jonah travels to the ends of the earth in order that he might run from the presence of God and disobey the mission that he's been given. Now, why would he do that? It's because he's sent to the Ninevites. The Ninevites, that's the capital of the kind of evil empire of Assyria, the bad guys, if you will. And historically speaking, these guys were brutal. The Assyrian Empire at this time is absolutely brutal. And so everyone knows them sort of as the bad guys. And Jonah's like, I don't want to go preach to them. It's Jonah getting sent to Nineveh as the capital of Assyria at this time period is like you getting sent to go preach the gospel to the emperor and Darth Vader in the center of the Death Star. Like it's not going to, you just know this isn't going to go well. Now you might be thinking, well, maybe he's, he's afraid because I wouldn't want to go into the Death Star. I don't want to go to this brutal, cruel empire. I know what will happen to me. But the issue is not fear. It's not that Jonah is afraid of these guys. He just doesn't like them. He hates them. He wants God's judgment to come upon them. He wants them to be destroyed. But now he knows he's the dove, son of the faithful one, being sent to offer a message of repentance. But he doesn't want to go. So as Jonah's fleeing from his mission, It says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the part that most people know because it's in all of the children's stories in the children's Bible. It's the popular part. Jonah gets swallowed up three days, and you can already see that's a clear parallel with the future death and resurrection of Jesus. Jonah is swallowed up, and then he's vomited out on dry land, and those images are meant to to, to relate to each other, but there's still more going on. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's his message. And again, it's a very short sermon, well-crafted. In Hebrew, this is is five words, that yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Hebrew, five words. His whole sermon is five words, man. It'd be wonderful, wouldn't it? Now, (laughs) There's another layer to this. This last word that you see, overthrown, is the Hebrew word hafak, and it means to turn something. And so in one sense, it's, it's sort of neutral. It doesn't have a, a positive or negative connotation to turn, like you turn a hamburger over, or in Exodus, Moses turns the Nile red as blood. So it's to turn something, it's to flip something over, but it can also be a term of destruction because if you're talking about a city being turned, you're talking about utter destruction taking place, which is fascinating because all Jonah says in his five-word sermon is, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be turned, which invites you as the reader to ask some questions like, what type of turning is Jonah hoping for? What type of, what type of turning? What type of turning does God want to see happen? Jonah wants to see them turned and destroyed. God wants to see them turn and restored. Interesting, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv, and it means to turn or to return. So uh, Jonah wants to see them turned as like destroyed, but God's heart is that they would shuv, they would turn or return in order that they might be turned, they might be changed. But it's kind of ambiguous to what Jonah actually wants. But his motivation will become crystal clear in a moment. 
So what happens? The people hear the five-word sermon. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Do you see the, the magnitude of this? From the greatest to the least, like the whole city is repenting. You went into the Death Star, Darth Vader, the Emperor, all the stormtroopers, they've, they've got baptismals out, everyone's repenting. It's like the greatest revival in human history. It's incredible. This is massive revival taking place. Jonah's getting to experience this, this miraculous mercy that God is bestowing upon these people. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. It's great news. It's great news. Fantastic news. Jonah chapter 4, the last chapter. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah's upset, and he begins bringing accusations against God. I knew you, I knew you would do this. I knew you would be gracious. I knew you would be merciful. I knew you would be forgiving. That's who you are. And that's why I ran away, because I didn't want to see these people turned. I wanted to see them turned. I wanted to see them destroyed. I knew this would happen. Now, there's, a, there's an even other layer to this, because remember, we started off in Matthew, and now we had to go back to Jonah to understand what Jesus is saying in the Gospel of Matthew. But to understand what is occurring in Jonah, now we have to go to the book of Exodus. Because this phrase, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, that is a direct quote from Exodus chapter 34. And it's actually the most quoted Old Testament verse in the Old Testament. It's constantly referenced back to now, what's the context for this verse being given in Exodus 34? This is what's crazy. It's actually God declaring those things about himself. God says, I am the gracious God and the merciful God. So you follow this. Jonah is quoting God to God in order to accuse God of wrongdoing. He's quoting scripture that God spoke. He's quoting a direct quote from God to God in order to accuse him. Now, when did God say this verse? When did he disclose this about his nature and characteristics? Well, Exodus chapter 34, and what are the stories taking place around that? This takes place directly after the golden calf incident. So to summarize, Moses goes up a mountain and he's receiving the covenant of God, the law of God. And while he's doing that, what is the rest of Israel is doing? What, what are they doing? They're down from the mountain and they've made a golden calf and they are worshiping false gods. Now, it says this implicitly in Exodus, but it's explicitly clear in the New Testament. They are actually in their worship of these false gods practicing sexual immorality. So, while Moses is on the mountain receiving the covenant of the Lord, the people are down there worshiping false gods and practicing sexual morality. Now, it gets worse because if you look at the language that's used 
surrounding the covenant making that God is doing, the covenant and the law being given, the language is all wedding language. So the Hebrew, the images, the phrases, they are wedding-like imagery. And the, the, the scripture is setting you up to see the covenant of the Lord with his people as something similar or parallel to a wedding covenant, a marriage covenant. So much so that from that point forward in the Old Testament, Israel is referred to as the bride of the Lord, the bride of Yahweh, the bride of God. And so you have all this beautiful marriage imagery. God is making a covenant with his people. But in the middle of that, they're worshiping false gods and committing sexual morality. Which says what? On the day and night of the making of the covenant, on the wedding night, on the day of the marriage, Israel is committing adultery. On the day of the wedding ceremony, Israel is adulterous. Now what should happen? Well, judgment should happen, right? I'm making a covenant, Moses on the mountain, you guys are doing this, bring down the law. Justice should occur. And in the text, justice does occur, but something else occurs. God reveals his character. And he's a just God, but he's also a gracious God, a merciful God, a slow to anger God, an abounding and steadfast love God, a relenting from disaster God. Israel should have been wiped out, but they were given mercy and grace, which means the very fact that Jonah is still breathing and making accusations against God is something he's doing out of an act of sheer grace because he shouldn't even be alive. If Israel was taken out, Jonah wouldn't even exist. So in, as Jonah breathes and breathes out accusations against the living God, his very breath and existence is a gift. It is a grace of God. The reason why you today breathe is because of grace. It is a gift of God. The air in your lungs is grace. It's grace. Jonah doesn't see it like that, though. He quotes God to accuse God of wrongdoing. I knew it. I knew you would forgive these guys, these guys that I hate. They are Gentiles. Do you know what they've done to our people? Do you know how evil they are, Lord? You're too merciful. You're too kind. You're too gracious. I knew you would do this. Therefore now, Jonah says, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now this first part is incredible. Now, Lord, take my life, for it is better to die than to live. This is what bitterness will do to you. You can become so bitter against a person or a group. Your bitterness takes over so much that you would rather die than see goodness happen to them. You'd rather, I'd rather die than see goodness poured out upon them. I'd rather die than see them be given grace or mercy. Now you say, how can people get to that? It happens all the time. I've seen this in countless people. I've seen it on people's deathbeds. They have become so bitter 
that as they face death, they would rather die than attempt to seek out peace and reconciliation with someone. Sometimes it's their loved ones. It just creeps in, that bitterness. And you know it's bad when you see something good happen to somebody that you know and your first response is like anger. It's because that bitterness is so, I, I, oh, I hate this, I hate them. I'd rather die than see goodness occur. That's where Jonah's at. And then there's this weird thing. He's just like, he goes to the east of the city, he makes a booth for himself. He's gonna sit in the shade and see what happens. Now again, it doesn't tell you his motivation, but if you're looking at the story, I think it becomes clear. Jonah is gonna go post up and see what happens because he's like, they got 40 days till the turning occurs. They might, they might repent of their repentance. They might go back to their evilness. Or maybe, maybe God's anger will be stored up. I don't know, but I'm going to sit and wait and watch. And just maybe I'll get to see him turn type of thing. Now, what occurs next is super weird. Um, and there's a lot going on, but I'm going to try to summarize it. A plant grows up, and it gives Jonah some shade. And then the plant dies, and his shade's gone. And now Jonah's just, he's even more bitter. He's even more cranky. And this is the ending to the book of Jonah. I'm going to read you the last few verses of the book of Jonah. This is how it ends. He's out there. He set himself up. He had a good shady spot. It's gone now, and he's waiting to see what happens to the city. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for that plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also so much cattle? It's weird. It's a weird book. But what's the idea? is Jonah is just bent on judgment, fire, and wrath coming upon the Ninevites. And he's seen God be merciful and gracious, and he's outside of the city almost like a child who refuses to come to the table. And he's just sitting out there waiting. Maybe judgment will happen. I knew you would act like this, God. You're so gracious. You're so merciful. These people deserve judgment. And God's like, what about the plant? What about the animals? What about the people? It's the ending of the book. Just ends. But what is, what is the overall big picture message? It's the message of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. That, that extends to even people like the Ninevites. Like, that is, those are the people that are off limits. Why, why would you want any mercy or grace to be shown to them? And Jonah sort of knew this going ahead of time because he knew God. And so it leaves us with this, this, these, these questions. Like what happens to Nineveh? What happens to Jonah? Is there genuine repentance? And it's like the point of the book is saying, don't focus on that. Focus on this. God is so gracious and merciful. He wants to save even the people you hate. And if you're honest with yourself, your heart is not like the heart of God in this. So, hundreds of years later, a group of Pharisees 
approach a man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth who has been going around forgiving and befriending tax collectors and sinners, saying the mission is even for the Gentiles. He's been showing love and care to the last, the lost, and the least of them, those on the out, those whom other people would say are not worthy of receiving mercy. And the Pharisees approach him and they say, give us a sign. You show us a sign. And Jesus says, the only sign you get is the sign of Jonah. That's all you're going to get. And in that, Jesus preaches for hours to the Pharisees. In that one phrase, you only get the sign of Jonah. They know exactly what he's talking about. Now remember, when Jesus says this, he hasn't been crucified. There's no death and resurrection yet. So everything's sort of mysterious. Their mind just go back to the book of Jonah and they know what the book of Jonah is about. God showing grace to those on the out. The sign of Jonah then is a rebuke to the Pharisees, but it's also a demonstration of the love of God. That no one is sort of outside the bounds. If God could save the Ninevites, then God can save anyone. And it also is a demonstration of the heart of God and it shows you just how loving, compassionate, and merciful he actually is because he loves even them. All people have been made in his image and because they've been made in his image, they have intrinsic worth and value. And so it's, it's this beautiful display of the wide reach of the love of God. Now you have to understand, historically speaking, that is radical and revolutionary. That Christianity would say that there is a God who actually loves all people. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You've had 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian influence to just kind of inform the culture that's like, oh yeah, of course, if there's a God, he's gonna love everybody. That's not how people thought. And if people are honest with themselves, they usually don't think that. They vilify people who aren't like them. But the radical nature of the love of God is revolutionary, historically speaking, that all people are made in his image, that he loves all people, And this is part of the reason why countless Christians have celebrated this past week. Because we declare that God loves all people. He loves all people made in his image. So the pregnant woman to the unborn to the born to every color and shade a human being could have, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. The love of God is that big and that powerful. And that is a radical, revolutionary message and it's been carried out by people for 2,000 years. Now, oftentimes it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, I loved how Jesus told those, those Pharisees, man. Go get them. I'm all about the love of God. And it's like, I'm about the love of God, man. There wouldn't be so much bitterness in all of our hearts. And so the word and warning from the book of Jonah is to us is you better watch it because you can see stuff so much and with all the evil in the world and all that's what's wrong with the world, your heart can start becoming cold and bitter and pretty soon you you start being like, just waiting for God to take them out. And there's nothing wrong with justice. God's justice is a good thing. But your fundamental posture as a Christian is to pray for reconciliation and repentance, not judgment. Because if God gave the judgment hammer to every single person who was wicked and opposed his will, 
Remember, why you breathe. That was grace. You breathe because God was gracious to you. And he sought you out. And he forgave you. So it's really easy to be like, oh yeah, go get him, Jesus. You are more like Jonah than you may think. Now, I want to do a quick sort of like case study in this because um, there's a person in the New Testament and the early church who, who comes to wrestle with the radical nature of the love of God. And it's Peter. And there's this interesting thing that takes place in Matthew chapter 16, a conversation between Jesus and Peter. It goes like this. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Okay. Did you know Peter's other name is Simon Barjona. Now, Bar is an Aramaic phrase. It means son. So Peter is a son of Jonah. Now, his dad isn't the real Jonah, but it's a different Jonah. So Peter, in the New Testament, is a son of Jonah. Okay, now how does this son of, jo- son of jo- Jonah respond to Jesus' words immediately after this? Jesus tells the son of Jonah, look, now I must go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die. And for those of you who are familiar with the Gospels, what does Peter do when he hears that Jesus must suffer and die? Not so. Not going to let it happen. Essentially, he says, over my dead body. We are not going to let you suffer and die. That's not the way this is going out. And how does Jesus respond? Remember? Get out of here. Get behind me. It's heavy. Okay. Flash forward. On the night of Jesus' betrayal, They come to arrest Jesus. And what does the son of Jonah do? Takes out a sword. And he strikes, chops off the ear of one of the guys. Right? What does Jesus do? He heals the people who are coming to arrest him that will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. But the son of Jonah sees Ninevites coming, takes out the sword. I'm ready to fight. Jesus is ready to heal. Because Peter, the rest of the disciples, and and the rest of the world at that time, and truthfully said, the world today is not ready and has never been ready to see the full display of the love of God. No one in their right mind would imagine how far God would go to save his enemies. Because ultimately this story ends with Christ dying the criminal's death between two criminals in order that he might save criminals like you and me. That is the message of the gospel of Christ. He would die the criminal's death between two criminals in order that he might save criminals just like you and just like me. And Peter wasn't ready for it and the world wasn't ready for it. Luke chapter 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified They crucified him and the criminals. And on his right hand and on his left. One on the right, one on the left. And Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm telling you, you can get so used to this story that that you're not truly letting it sink in. 
what extent, how far would God himself go? He goes to the criminal's death between two criminals to save us. That is the love of God. He cares and loves and befriends and forgives those on the out, the last, the lost, and the least. He cares and loves for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, how does this son of Jonah respond to this? Because he clearly wasn't getting it before, right? How does the son of Jonah respond now? Well, years after, in the book of Acts, there's a man by the name of Cornelius who's about to become a Christian. Interesting notes about Cornelius He's a Roman centurion. He's a Gentile. Now, if he is a Roman centurion, he is the equivalent to a Ninevite soldier for Jonah. Right? Who was the big, bad, evil empire in Jonah's day? The Assyrians. Who's the big, bad, evil empire in Peter's day? Romans. So there's a Roman centurion who's about to become a Christian. He's about to become the first Gentile, non-Jewish Christian, the first Gentile convert in history. But before he becomes a Christian, God sends a messenger to this Cornelius. He's like, no, before you come become a Christian, I want a certain individual to preach the gospel to you. I want a certain individual. Now, what individual do you think God chose to preach the gospel to the first Gentile convert who's a Roman centurion? A one who is a son of Jonah. Simon, the son of Jonah. Now, at this point, some of you might be thinking, okay, that's really cool, but it's a little stretch to connect those dots. However awesome you think the Bible is, it's more awesome. However good you think it is, it's better than that because I'm not stretching anything because the son of Jonah is sent to convert the first Gentile convert who is a modern equivalent of the Ninevites, a Roman centurion, and guess where the son of Jonah is at? where he hears the word of the Lord telling him, now go preach to the Roman centurion. Take a wild guess where he's at. And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. The son of Jonah is in Joppa, the exact same place we started our story in Jonah. The first Jonah was in Joppa and was told to go to Nineveh. He ran. He didn't want to do that. But now a son of Jonah who has been transformed by the cross of Christ is given the message. There's a Roman centurion that needs to hear the gospel and he's in Joppa. Don't... That's how the sovereign hand of God works, by the way. And Peter shows up, and he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how lawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Jonah, son of Jonah, in Joppa are both sent to the bad guys. The first Jonah, nah. The second one, I came without objection because he's seen the love of God in Christ, his Lord. 
So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, for he is Lord of all. Even the people who you wanted to see destroyed. And then it ends. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who has come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the bad guys, even on the Gentiles, even on the Romans, even on the Ninevites, even on you, even on me. That's how great God's love is. So what is the sign of Jonah? It of course is reaches its climax in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But it's a rebuke to those who might have their hearts become so hardened that they themselves begin to think, we're the ones who are loved by God, but these others aren't. And it's a warning. Don't let that stuff creep in your heart. It'll get you. And then the sign of Jonah is also a testament to the love of God. I cannot overemphasize this enough. Historically speaking, if you go back 2,000 years ago, and you heard the message that there is a crucified Jewish man who was killed under the Romans, but he rose from the dead, and the message is that he is saving people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, that he loves all men and all women, and if you follow him, you become a believer, and you become a part of the body of Christ where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. That message was beyond anybody's categories, and we stand in the wake of that. It's a tremendous blessing to know the gospel of Jesus Christ and to be a part of his body. And so we're going to transition to not just one sacrament today, but two sacraments, communion and then baptism, which is like extra special, extra special day. First communion. Let's stand. How far did God go to show you mercy, to show you grace, to demonstrate to you and the world that he's a gracious God, a merciful God, a God of steadfast love? What did he do? He laid down his life. He says, this is my body broken for you. So today we remember, Lord. Likewise, Jesus takes the cup. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant, which your words from where we went today, those words should ring in your ear. It's new covenant. It's a new covenant. So what has happened historically? God sets up covenants and humanity breaks them. They're unfaithful. All humanity was unfaithful. And so it's like on the night of the wedding, humanity betrays commits adultery on that night. But then the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. It's almost as if in the midst of our adultery, in the midst of our rebellion, Christ himself comes down and gets down on one knee and proposes and says, we can try this again, you know. 
We can give this, we can do this again. And he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And I can renew you from the inside out. And now today, the church is called what? The bride of Christ. And we are married to our faithful husband who will never leave us or forsake us and has purchased us with his own blood, a family from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So if you've been faithful, Lord, help us to be faithful.